I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Austin Healy, and this is the Rugby Tonight podcast. On this week's show, Grand Slam winning England women, Sarah Hunter and Amy Wilson-Hardy joined us in the studio as we look back at the final round of the Six Nations and cast our thoughts ahead to the return of the Aviva Premiership this weekend. Here's the best of our Rugby Tonight insight and analysis from Brian O'Driscoll, Craig Doyle and our studio guests. Zebo had a fantastic game like, well, all those guys in the green shirt did. Some effort from the lads. Crowd, energy was insane. I was there. The stadium was absolutely electric, particularly in the last 10 minutes. Fantastic. The England boys, they didn't go on to get the Grand Slam, but they did win, and they do still know how to celebrate. Six Nations, second, one on the trot. Okay, big news now from World Rugby on the new global calendar, which will be implemented after the 2019 season. Here's World Rugby's CEO, Brett Gosper, who's going to try and explain what it all means. What's been great is that the Tier 1s have agreed to play a lot more games against Tier 2 sides, as they're traditionally called. And so you'll see a lot more competition between those nations and Tier 1s that maybe haven't done as much heavy lifting in that competition aspect will now do a lot more. So... In that sense, it's a really good outcome. It all bodes well as well for the tier nations, the two nations tier two. Speaking of which, Romania beat Georgia and Bucharest at the weekend to win the Rugby Europe Championship. Congratulations to them. There's the guys celebrating over there in Bucharest. There's a little bit of confusion about the trophy at the end. We'll go into that in a bit more detail later on in the show. But great to see everybody talking about Georgia maybe replacing Italy in the Six Nations. Got a little bit about Romania there as well, didn't they? Also, congratulations to the England Sevens team in their win in Vancouver. They beat the Blitzbox in the final. England are now second in the world standings and will be continuing to follow their progress and their campaign as they head on to Hong Kong. Good luck there, guys. What a great tournament Hong Kong is. If you're going over there, enjoy the hospitality. OK, further news. The WRU has confirmed heads of agreement in a deal to take over the Newport Gwent Dragons and purchase Rodney Parade by the beginning of July. A statement says in a deal worth, said to be worth around about 40 quid, the sale has been ratified by the boards of WRU, Newport RFC and the Dragons. But Newport, also their shareholders, have to agree for the deal to go through. The region's name would be changed to Dragons, dropping the Newport Gwent once the deal is confirmed. Good news, I think, actually. WRFU taking over one of the regions, hopefully increase the strength of that side. And finally, well done to the Leicester Tigers for winning the Anglo-Welsh Cup on Sunday. As Freddie Burns, he's off to uh, bath at the end of the season, but he really enjoyed it and played a big part in the victory. International Day of Happiness, well done to Freddie Burns. But it did lead on to further news. Big news, well, bigger news, you'd argue, is that Matt O'Connor is to return to the Leicester Tigers as their head coach. And here's how some of the players have reacted to it. Vianu thinks with five games to go, really? We don't know how good we've got it. Obviously a big fan of Aaron Major, as are many of the players. Lachlan McCaffrey, he's gone on to uh, go on and said, never enjoyed my rugby more than under Major. Great coach and a great bloke. Any person, any team would be lucky to have him. Interesting to see Matt O'Connor being announced and coming in now. Also interesting to see where this guy's going to end up going. Yeah, he said he wants to find a nice, soft place to land for a while and just figure out what he's going to do next. Uh, at I am Austin Healy, uh, Newport, and all Wales rugby fans, let's see if he can take Twitter down tonight. I think that's <laughs> going to be a big talk. Well, you naughty boy, Austin. Um, we're going to talk about that in a moment, Brian, but I want to talk about uh, the England celebrations post-match. It was a really odd one because I, f I actually felt sorry for them. They, they accepted the trophy, but... Uh, <laughs> 
Up he come. Up he come. Up he come. Up he come. I was only reading what it said on the auto I know, I know you were. You sit down there now. Uh, 50 quid. <laughs> 50 quid. Go to hell, San um, Diego. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's just talk about the England celebrations because they were quite muted in the dressing room, it seems, if you want to have a look at them again. But I, that's OK if you're an England fan. You kind of want that because they kind of let something go as well. Yeah, listen, if they were overly jovial, having just come off the pitch half an hour earlier, having lost a Grand Slam, first back-to-back -back Grand Slam since 92, of course, you know, they're, they're a team that's just won 18 on the bounce. They were going for a record. Of course you're going to have disappointment. That's, that smiles through gritted teeth. Um, because their expectation levels are much higher, they wanted to go over and win and show the world that they were up to um, you know, a new world record and beating a good team like Ireland in Dublin. So yeah, I think that says an awful lot about their character and the people they are and the team that they've become, that it was fairly muted uh, celebrations, albeit having a trophy sit in front of you. Uh, we're going to get reaction from Eddie Jones as well tonight, and we're going to have a sideways view of the Six Nations and have a chat about it too. But let's talk about Matt O'Connor on his way back to Leicester Tigers. Uh, what's your take on that appointment? A popular one, I'd imagine, with fans, but mixed emotions from players. Yeah, I think, look, Leicester in the process of changing a lot of stuff. It's a shame that one of the board members has got tonsillitis and couldn't be here this <laughs> evening to really... I, mean, I don't know whether he, he gave it to himself or whatever, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to phone Ben up earlier and he couldn't tell me anything because he's got no voice which was a bit upsetting, but I think the timing's difficult. You've just won your first trophy in four years. You effectively sacked the coach, what was going on behind closed scenes, and I still believe there's, there's more to come from us. There's more changes required. Just bringing in Matt O'Connor, who is great in a tracksuit, but one of the nicest guys around. I mean, me and Jacko were talking about him earlier, a lovely, lovely bloke. But sometimes you need a little bit of edge at the top. If you're a director of rugby or you're in charge of the team, you need to be able to give someone a bit of a good kick in the ghoulies every now and then. And he's not that sort of bloke. So they've already said somebody else will come in and be the head of rugby or director of rugby, whatever that title is, but he will be in charge of the team. So hopefully it works for Leicester. They're going to have to make more signings in terms of players. And I think we will see a lot more news coming out of that club in coming months. He's a really nice guy. It's good to see him have another big public job after what happened at Leinster. What did happen at Leinster? I think just on, on Austin's point, I think that's the, 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 uh, the big question as to whether he is a head coach. I think it worked really well in Leicester before because it was good cop, bad cop with Cockrell. You know, Cockrell would give them a berating and then he'd put an arm around their shoulder and tell them they were great. Technically, he's a good coach. It's just, you know, you go into a video session and there's only so many times that he can take the piss out of someone uh, for making a mistake and you just lose a small bit of the, of the room when you do that. And he is, he's the sort of coach that you'd love to go out and have a beer with, uh, but you don't always need that in your head coach. OK, well, let's look at the game. Um, statistically, first of all, Brian, if you don't mind, and uh, just the numbers. The first thing here is the first four games, the averages yeah. for England, just England alone, and this is just the Ireland game. What picture does this paint? Well, there's a couple of things that stand out for me. I suppose the, a, a big stat is almost double the amount in the first four games of metres made versus that against Ireland. And that comes from 75% possession for Ireland in the first half. They got it back to 60-40 overall the game, but very hard to get any metres made when you don't own the ball. So just to clarify, in their first four games, they were making an average over 500 metres yeah. against Ireland, just two forwards. That's it, right. that's it. And you, know, you had some huge individual performances, sometimes players getting 80, 90, over 100 metres, but there was none of that on Saturday. That was largely down to the, the brilliant possession uh, and keep ball that Ireland were playing. The second thing, uh, which has a knock-on effect as well, is when they did get the ball too, they didn't beat nearly as many defenders. That probably had, uh, the, the weather had a, a bit of a bearing on that. They weren't able to you know, play the elaborate game that they had done in some of the other games. And I would, I would imagine of the 10 defenders they beat, there was probably about four or five of them in the first 10 minutes when they had a purple patch. So Ireland really did you know, well worth their, their victory uh, and possibly could have won by a bit more. I think there was three main factors that contributed to the game. I think England were off the pace from where they've been. They didn't have the ability to change the game up. We've seen in previous games against Italy, wasn't going very well, changed the plan, won. Against Wales, wasn't going very well, changed the plan, won. Against Ireland, wasn't going very well, didn't have the ability to change the plan, lose. You couple that with the excellent performance defensively and the physicality of the Irish and the weather as well. The weather played a part because if you want to change your plan during the game, you have to have the ability to move the ball to a different area of the field. And because of the line speed and the difficult conditions, England were condensed into a tighter defensive period. And it really shows it if we look at some more stats. And this isn't a touchscreen, so I've got no idea why I touched it. But strangely, <laughs> it, 
has just changed. <laughs> um, if you look at the top carriers, all the top carriers, the top five, all from the Irish. We've spoken about possession. They were really high on that. But they carried a lot with a lot more intelligence than, than England. They carried in different areas of the field. They moved defenders on angles. They put shoulder balls a lot. The carries from England were all straight up, let's give it to Billy, he'll crash over. He didn't. He didn't get over the gain line as much as we normally see him. And that's conversely when you look at the top tacklers. You never normally see the top five tacklers. No one on the Irish team made more than 13 tackles, which I find amazing. Yeah, let's stretch that out. That's usually down to some form of laziness, but that's an incredible stat to see all green, all, all white there. And interesting, just, just looking at the top metres made, and Mike Brown of the 250-odd was 62. It's interesting, um, Mike Brown made a couple of errors, and a lot of people are, are, are questioning his uh, performances. I think the big thing about him and, and what differentiates an England team from... New Zealand team is, New Zealand get an awful lot of tries from their wings. I think they need more of a link player in that position. He just isn't able to see where the space is as well as, as, as other fullbacks out there. Um, I think he has, he's an incredible athlete himself and always able to beat the first defender. But to be number one in the world, to win World Cups, you have to be able to take your opportunities when they arise. And you know, I don't think he did that and England didn't do that at the weekend. We're going to hear from Eddie Jones now, but do you think it's going to maybe cause for some changes from England's I'll perspective? Perspective, do you think? Inevitably, at the end of the Six Nations, win or lose, members of the press always say, who's going to get dropped out the England side? Who's leaving the Irish team? Players will be given another opportunity, but some players are getting closer towards the end of that precipice than, than others. Hey, look, he served them well. 18 wins Oh, look, I'm not saying it's going to be yeah, him. It could be, it, you don't know who it's going to be, is sure, what I'm saying. Sure. Well, uh, I don't know if Eddie Jones is going to give us any more information about what changes might come in the future for England, but he did sit down for a bit of a chat with our very own Ali Eakin to reflect on the Six Nations Championship. Oh, they were too good for us. Yeah, they played extremely well, and they were just too good on the day. And these things happen. Uh, could we have prepared better? Yes. Uh, so I've identified a few areas that we can change in the future. Yeah, I don't think I gave the team the right environment to prepare well, and I have to take responsibility for it. I, I don't think I created the right, absolute right mindset for the team, and I need to look at, at what I said and what I didn't say and, and improve on that in the future. But I don't think, you know, we lacked intensity or we lacked passion or we lacked a desire or we lacked effort. You know, I disagree with that very strongly. Yeah, they played really well. Well, there was always going to be a big reaction to Eddie Jones's first defeat as England boss. They were comfortably second best, but he was keen to point out that grand slams, particularly back-to-back -back ones, don't exactly grow on trees. At the end of the day, you know, we've got back-to-back -back Six Nations trophy, which is a fine achievement. Now, the only people who realise how hard grand slams are are the people who've won them. It's not great to lose, but it's a great learning experience. There's no scar there at all. You know, I, I, again, if you look at... You, you guys know history of rugby. You know what the All Blacks had to go through to win the World Cup in 2011? Lost a semi-final against us in 2003, Australia. They lost a the quarter-final in 2007. They got to the final in 2011 and, and they had to have a very kind referee to get them home. <laughs> yeah, that's how hard it is. That's how hard it is to win. So for us to lose a Grand Slam game when we've already got the trophy is hardly a scar. It's a learning experience. Did you think we would never get defeated? Having a, a winning record and having undefeated record is fantastic, but it's un, it's unreal in 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 world rugby. You know, you're always going to get caught by by a team on on its day when they're at their best, and that's why the that's the great thing about Test rugby. It was just such an odd game, the France-Wales game. And I guess at the end of those games, there's a lot of finger-pointing and what happened. And Wayne Barnes re really copped it, didn't he, lads? Uh... Yeah, he did. I, th look, I think he made one bad decision in the game. But at the end, I think his ability and his calm uh, approach under huge amounts of pressure... Let's say, you know, 20 minutes after the final whistle is still going. And I, I think that... He had a brilliant Six Nations, Wayne Barnes. And what has annoyed me a bit since that is the comments and the toing and froing. I think Rob Howley's done himself and the game a little bit of a disservice with what he's said. There's been comments coming back from the French team about, 
you know, the Anglo-Saxons and disrespecting them. And in games like this, they should just be remembered for being unbelievable spectacles, things that we very, very rarely see. And what goes around often comes around. Sides have adapted and gone close to the usage of the laws for many years, for doing all sorts of stuff, from Bloodgate to even players playing for countries when they didn't actually qualify for those countries. So sides do things to win. And sometimes you're on the losing side when that happens, and sometimes you're on the winning side. And I think it's taken a little bit away from the game what's gone on afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of it was a good talking point. It was a fun talking point, unless you're a Wales fan, I guess. Yeah, here's a collector's item. I agree with Austin. Um, I, I think the Wayne Barnes did have an, uh, a pretty impressive game. I, I think I'd be interested to see if it's the same uh, wrong decision that we, that we agree on, but I thought he could potentially have given a penalty try on that last scrum. Uh, but other than that, I thought he was calm, collected. Um, you know, the, the, there wasn't much play involved, so um, you know, it wasn't his fault that it ran over 20 minutes. He, he just you know, weighed up everything and made his calls, uh, as any good barrister would do, on the, on the information that he was presented with. So I thought he had uh, a, good, a good game. It's, it's, it's pretty thankless at times being a referee, but I, I thought I agree with us. I think he had a very good Six Nations, and he, he's consistently one of the best referees in the world. And we can never forget, he is one man on that pitch. Yeah, he has the TMO, he has his touch judges. He doesn't have all the screens in front of him. He doesn't have that ability to have a, a conversation away from the public oh. eye. And Rob Howley, I just want to read out yeah. what he actually said, because he said, integrity in our game is pretty important. Uh, what happened in the last 10 minutes of that game should ever happen again in the rugby field. But I think what he was really focusing on, Oz, was the process leading up to the change of the French tight head. The way that occurred, we love our game too much to have those decisions. It's hugely disappointing. So I just want to have a look at this decision. We got sound on it from the ref mic as well. Have a listen and then discuss it. Have a look at this. It's just told me he's not injured. Do you think he needs a head assessment? Yes. Yes. As a doctor, you have said he needs a head assessment. Okay, so basically, to, to summarise there, uh, the player himself said, actually, it's my yeah. back. Yeah, he said, it's my back. Slimani was warming up at the time. It looks like a little bit of a twisting of the rules, and I can understand Wales fans are but, upset. But whose fault is it? The laws are completely irrelevant the moment the doctor says, I believe he needs a HIA. At that point, he needs a HIA. doesn't matter whether the doctor's right or wrong. Because he said it, he's the sole arbitrator of fact in that situation, and that's why he went off. People say, well, Slomani was warming up two minutes before that. We don't know why he was warming up. He's French. You know, <laughs> it, could, it could have been warming up for any reason. And I think sometimes you read things into it. I, I know that people will maybe disagree with what I've just said, but I think the moment the doctor says that, we, we have to believe him. Brian? Yeah, of course. If you're a Welsh, would you be largely put out at that? Of course you would, but I'm with Austin. We're talking, Rob Howley's talking about integrity. You can't question the integrity of, of, of the doctor. Um, they're the one that takes the decision out of the player's hands. And again, Wayne Barnes put all the onus on him. And, um, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to be an affair that we've seen in the past, but it was, a, it was a contentious moment, and only that doctor really knows whether he's telling the truth or not. Um, we won't discuss the penalty try, because I know a lot of people in the pubs. Just one thing I want to ask you, Anderson, you know, in up and down pubs around, around all the different home nations, uh, people saying it should have been a penalty try, because George North scores all the time like that. Uh, it doesn't matter who's trying to score or who's trying to stop him, does it? It's one player against another, as simple as that. I think it was a penalty try. Having seen it Do a few you? times, okay. I think it was a penalty try. And I know Sarah and Baptiste Saran is, is covering across, but it gives you a bit of a different concept because the way the ball's hit, I think that George North, this is going into his hands, there's no way Saran is getting there in time to stop him if he catches the ball. That's the only difficult thing for me. He catches that. When he, when he's, he takes two strides back, so it gives the appearance that Saren's actually right on him by the time he gets to the corner flag. The reality is, he doesn't break stride, he takes the ball. It might be slightly on his hip, but I don't think he's slowing down enough for Saren to catch him. It's, it's on his hip, and I, and I think that puts into doubt the certainty of whether that try is scored. And it's nothing to do with who, def who the defender is being a scrum half against a huge winger like George North. That's nothing to do with it. Is the, the probability, is it going to be scored? Yes, but I think there's enough leeway there for, for Wayne Barnes to have called that right. OK, talking about scoring tries, uh, Scotland scored quite a few of them under this man. He's completely changed their attack. Although they had a very positive attack, he's got them across the whitewash, really got them to that red zone. Um, what have we learned about Scotland in well, this situation? Scotland always had a very positive attitude to attack, but now they've actually got lots of ability to fulfil it. I think one of the issues they had during the Six Nations, they just dropped off in the last two games. And that's, I think, 
because of the sheer weight of numbers of their squads and also losing size in their back row meant that physically they got stopped on the gain line by the bigger sides. But now they've got a 10 that they can build a, a team around. Finn Russell, fantastic player. Both the centres are very competitive. Defensively, they have to improve. And a back three that can take on any back three in world rugby, particularly Hogg. We were talking about Mike Brown before. Hogg creates tries for his wingers. His wingers look better because they play with him. And Scotland will be a real force once they start to develop their under-20s and their localised game. It is an incredible path, isn't it? Four tries scored in the Six Nations before Vern Cotter arrived, 14 as he left. And then you got, you know, Gregor Townsend coming in, who was a wonderful attacking ten in his day. Look what he's done with Glasgow. What can he do with the likes of Finn Russell? I think he's inheriting a good team, first of all. I think he's inheriting a team that's particularly difficult to beat in Murrayfield. But in Finn Russell, I think you've got one of the really exciting outside halves in Europe. I think this guy's really going to push hard for uh, Lions uh, honours th this year. Um, it's just his ability to be able to read the situation, knowing when to take it to the line and flash really you know, hard missed passes across and take defenders out, or simply just sticking uh, the, the second last defender, you know, little shift of his body to the outside, you know, and he realizes that it's a simple two on one for Hogg to affect to see more. So it's just, I think really good players do the simple things very well. And Finn Russell uh, has X Factor, and he's the sort of player that's willing to take shots on the line and hurt himself, put himself in position to be hurt. That means he's creating space out in the wider channels. Um, I know you judge teams, you judge coaches by performances and when you look at Italy and you look at their table and their results and their losses, you think they've done really badly. But I don't think that reflects the job Conor O'Shea has with Italy. It goes beyond the national team. It's the structure of rugby over there. It's so deep-rooted, the problems he has to deal with and fix. Mm. Uh, I, I just don't know how you analyse fairly what he's done in his short tenure there already. I think he's had a, a brilliant Six Nations and I'm not just saying that because I'm going on holiday with him in the summer. But uh, <laughs> he's had an amazing Six Nations, probably the the best coach. <laughs> okay. No, no. <laughs> like you said, he's got lots of problems outside of his team to deal with. He has to tidy those up first. He's in the process of doing that. And then he's got to find somebody within that side that you can become the talisman. Parise is coming towards the end of his career. Uh, World-class player for a number of years. One of the best eights I think we've ever seen in the game in terms of natural ability and, and game reading. Um, but he needs to find someone else, someone else that is world-class. Scotland have got Hogg. He's world-class. Who, who have Italy got? No one yet. We will see. We will see. Um, no Grand Slam one for the men, but there were Grand Slams for the under-20s and the women, of course, because it was such a wonderful night at the R RDS. It wasn't. It was Donnybrook in Dublin uh, when the England team did the deed and beat Ireland to win the Grand Slam. Great atmosphere, huge crowd, a real reflection of how the women's game has grown and grown. So will you please give a very warm rugby tonight welcome to the England Grand Slam winning captain Sarah Hunter and the flyer who scored the first try on Friday night, Amy Wilson Harday. Good to see you. How are you? Well, have a seat. Well done. Well done. Um, it was such a brilliant... Oh, there are the medals. I, think, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think... Oh, Austin okay. definitely doesn't own one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got those wonderful few days after winning a championship where it just kind of slowly sinks in and everyone wants to talk to you. Are you enjoying it? And how does it feel? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's a massive high-end thing to be part um, for me, for this, this new experience, playing 15s this year, is, it's been incredible um, to be led by Sarah Hunter as well. Um, definitely, we enjoyed the celebrations and have a bit of time off, which is very nice. <laughs> Sarah, you're very experienced in this game, but I felt something was different on Friday night. The crowd, the atmosphere, the tension. Um, the game has grown and it was reflected in that Friday night, I thought. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you could have set up better a Grand Slam decider in Ireland on St. Patrick's Day and it all added to it. Uh, the yeah, Don thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and being at Donningbrook, playing after the under-20s boys, there was a sense of an occasion and I think it showed just how far the women's game has come, that half-time it was 5-0. Um, 20 minutes ago, it was 10-0. There was a real edge to it and a real intensity to it, a real test match feel. And I think it was a strength and depth within our team that just managed to pull through in, in the last sort of 10, 15 minutes of the game. How was the night ahead in Dublin, by the way? Was it good? We didn't make it out to Dublin. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, um, because our late kick-off post-match function was quite late, so uh, we didn't get back to our hotel till, till quite late. But we enjoyed a, quite a few drinks together as a team in the hotel. All right, I'm sure he does not tell us anything. <laughs> Uh, let's have a look at the table. Let's reflect on how it went for the girls, Austin, because it was a, a really, really good campaign from the England women, wasn't it? It is. And we've been talking about the girls and the, the sport over the last few years, from the Sevens to the World Cup. 
to you know all the players that have been developed in the sport and I, like you like you guys i believe it's just a uh, it's it's making a big leap change now it's really starting to accelerate and maybe that's because of the professionalism coming in in january um the players starting to get paid now and it just when you become a professional it's not necessarily about you doing more training or being more committed there's just something that switches in your head that changes your approach to the game and i think maybe we're starting to see that particularly with england and i'd like to see more of those sides become professional so it becomes more and more competitive because otherwise england are just going to keep accelerating i think england have become the standard bearers of of women's uh you know 15s now uh, up there with the kiwis um, I think if you look at the quality throughout the team, that's what differentiates them from other sides. I think you know their best players versus the, you know their probably their considered worst are, are is not a big gulf. I think that's actually what what separates them from the rest of the Six Nations teams. It's interesting actually because you know you've been in the game a long time. You've seen the change. You've kind of always been a pro of sorts because you were playing sevens and. How, I mean, I think it was obvious on the pitch and over the course of the tournament, you just had a little extra edge on everyone else. Is that the professional aspect of the game, the training? Is that, that what's doing it? Yeah, I think, obviously, regardless of being professional or not, um, I can speak for the other nations as well, we all train extremely hard. And even before we played professionally, in kind of volume-wise, we did an awful lot of training, but it's kind of, one, the rest that we get and um, almost the accumulation of load that um, is formed, which makes you more robust and more resilient to these high demands on the body. Um, I think it did tell because we kept like a fit squad throughout the whole campaign. I'm looking at the world rankings here in New Zealand, top at the moment. Is their game, women's game, professional? Um, their the 15th game isn't. isn't um, they've obviously got, um, similar to, to us, where they have a lot of their sevens girls that are on their professional roster that move across to 15s, which obviously has a, a massive impact um, within them. But we're fortunate that we're going down to New Zealand in June, so um, hopefully we'll be able to guess, test ourselves against the, the best-ranked team according to stats in uh, the world. After that tour, of course, it's back <laughs> according to stats. Very good. Um, it's over to Ireland for the Rugby World Cup. We cannot wait. Everyone's very excited back in Ireland, that's for sure. Um, let's have a little look through the pool, shall we, and see who's got to do what. And there's a couple of tough ones in there. Uh, Canada, New Zealand and Wales, three really strong teams in there with Hong Kong. And, and, and that's a tough old pool, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And I think going back to where the women's game has gone, that is showing that um, now, now the pools are becoming really tight. Three, four teams from any of the pools can go through and I think it will add to the most competitive World Cup that we've seen in the women's game. Italy, Spain, USA in your pool. What do you think? Yeah, I think as Sarah alluded to, the game's come on so far, especially in the last couple of years, that you, there's no such thing as an easy game anymore. Um, I think, yes, like as the stats say, it, we're, we're favourites to definitely go through, but anything can happen on the day and the game's just growing and growing. Yeah, the Ireland pool is really tough. We would even, we would even it's good to see the that. professionalism. They get media training as well, so they just <laughs> basically bash every question back at you. <laughs> One of the big stories in the rugby world this week has been the new global calendar. It is set to change. This is how it currently stands. All very familiar. The Premiership runs up to the end of May. We have that wonderful day out in Twickenham, which you can see live in BT Sport, as always. Super Rugby uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere. They run all their kind of pool stages and all that malarkey, and then they take a break before the knockout stages in June and July. Summer tours there, World Cup, end of September through to October. And uh, it's all kind of familiar. This is how it's going to look from 2019, 2020. So as you can see, the big mover there is Premiership Rugby. It's going to go on till the end of June. Now, there is a break on there, OK, so it's not quite running all the way through. Once we get to the semi-final stage, they'll take a two-week break and we'll have the final in Twickenham at the end of June. So it'll be beautiful sunshine and a great crack and all that malarkey. Uh, Super Rugby will run all the way through from the start of their competition through to the final. And the Six Nations is going to be condensed from seven weeks down to six weeks. Look at the World Cup down there in the corner, though. Look at that. It's just been nudged back. It's going to start a week earlier in September. So uh, that's the big change. I know a lot of you will be saying, where's the Pro 12 on that? Uh, they actually haven't confirmed what they're going to do yet. They're saying they're just looking at their options and they'll get back to us, get back to all rugby fans on how that's going to play out. So that's why we've left them out of that at the moment. But um, interesting, who are the, the big winners? Which, which part of the globe wins here, do you think? Well, clearly with law changes, it's usually the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, on this occasion, the Southern Hemisphere, again, I think has benefited the most. Uh, they have complete continuity. Uh, every tournament sees its way through to the end, whereas 
I think the Northern Hemisphere actually have, have had a, a bit of a bit of a rum deal. I mean, the clubs may disagree a little bit because they'll get more rugby. The players will play more rugby. They've got less pre-season. If you're going from September to June, I remember how vital June was because by May your body is in absolute pieces and you need four weeks just to rest before you even start thinking about pre-season and building yourself back up. So I, I, I do think the Southern Hemisphere is better off with it. It's got more continuity, but... It is another opportunity for the biggest generator of cash to generate more cash for World Rugby. How about Six Nations? One of the fallow weeks has gone. It's a six-week tournament now, which is going to help a lot of these guys because they've been really at the pub a lot. You know, they could just <laughs> they could do a yeah, cut in a package. Yeah, when, when I started out almost 20 years ago, it was a game on a, a, and a weekend off, and now you're condensing right down to three in a row. It's almost getting to World Cup stakes where... Uh, you're going to need bigger squads. We talked about it a bit earlier on with Scotland and the attritional nature of Six Nations. Well, it's, all, it's getting even harder. Um, so I agree with Austin with, uh, with the pre-seasons. I think if we're talking about player welfare, players need five, six, seven, eight weeks pre-season to build for a long season like that, and they're not going to get it anymore. It's almost a year-round season now if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly if you go on tour. Uh, you know, if you played all the way to June, you go into tour, you're not going to get that little extra gap that you got if you went and played for England in Argentina or you went on a Lions tour. Uh, you know, where are the Lions going to fit into this? It's going to be very, very difficult, actually. You've got to remember that World Rugby are actually a, they're a charity. They're a rugby charities, so they've got to look at every aspect of rugby and helping develop all of them, particularly the Tier 2 nations. Yeah. And one of the benefits for the Tier 2 nations are that the Tier 1 nations will have to go and tour over there a little bit more often. And conversely, the likes of Romania and Georgia get to play in the big stadiums up in the Tier 1 nations as well, which is really good for rugby. So let's get some reaction from them. Let's hear from Georgian head coach Milton Haig and Romanian head coach Lynn. Howells, who battled it out in the Tier 2 Six Nations final over the course of the weekend. Well done to Romania on that one, but let's get their reaction. I think it's a big testimony to World Rugby that they've managed to do this. To get a Tier 1 nation from the Six Nations to come here and play is, is, is huge because they fetch something totally different to what, what is experienced in, in Tier 2 games. Imagine if you're a young 16-year-old now and this has come out and your opportunities that are going to come up after four years, well, it's going to be a fantastic place to be, that's, that's for sure, if you're in a Tier 2 country. In the long run, if to make the World Cup even more competitive, this is the type of initiative that's absolutely necessary for it to happen. I remember, I think, one of the first times I saw uh, Brendan Mullen score a try for Ireland was against Romania. They beat them 68-0. But it was important to have them touring around, and we don't, don't see them tour so often anymore. It's only a good thing, surely. It has to be. Um, and these teams can only get better when they play better opposition. You know, it's all well and good playing against each other and they can improve a small bit and particularly Romania and Georgia take, you know, take games off one another. But you sometimes need to get continually beaten. You look at the success of Argentina in the rugby championship. You know, they've been at it a number of years now. They've picked off a couple of one-off victories, but they're getting better. And you saw their showing in the World Cup um, was, was, um, was content of, of the fact that they did. Um, they have been able to improve playing against that, that better quality opposition. As you mentioned, the controversy of us all talking about Georgia coming into Tier 1, but actually it was Romania who won the trophy. Uh, and they've got to be included in the conversation now, surely? Yeah, I think so. And we've mentioned, I mean, these sides are Tier 2, but let's not forget USA, Japan. Some of the other sides, Tonga, Samoa, you could argue, are Tier 2 sides, but more fashionable if you like to play against because they've got bigger guys and the, the gates are going to be bigger. And I think, like Dricko said, it's OK them playing against each other and only each other. They're not going to improve. They need more finances, which World Rugby are providing for them. Uh, they need more access to the bigger games. But I think the key area is the World Cup. So when you get to the World Cup and these sides get knocked out in the, in the group stages, they all go home. No, I don't know why they all go home, because you basically play a game on a Saturday and then you have to wait for the next quarter-final or the semi-final the following Saturday. You still have all these sides that could still be there playing against each other in front of big crowds with all the sides there. So I don't know why they don't so use like that. like a plate or something Yeah, like, like a that. plate yeah. and try and develop it with those nations that get knocked out, because, as we've seen, England would have been in the plate and they would have got the opportunity to play against Romania and Georgia, you know, in a, in a different tournament. Well, they so. did manage to sneak a win against Uruguay in that World Cup, so, you know, they got, the, <laughs> Thanks they got their opportunities. Uh, let's talk about how this new calendar affects the six, uh, not the Six Nations, the Aviva Premiership, <laughs> because obviously their season now stretches on to the end of June. How did the Premiership react? Well, here's their chief executive, Mark McCafferty, with his views on the changes to the global calendar and the impact on the Premiership and the future of the Anglo-Welsh Cup. He was at the stoop for that. That's where we found him. It comes into operation um, in the 1920 season, so there's um, another three years or so to plan for the detail of that. But basically it's going to mean that um, the end of the Premiership season is now going to go into June. 
Um, so it's going to move forward about three or four weeks. So that, from our point of view, that's one of the things we've been working on for a couple of years to try and get more Premiership rugby post Six Nations, firmer pitches, better weather, bigger climax in June, separates us a little bit more from, from the challenges of competing against football. So all of those things are, are coming to bear in that 1920 season for the first time and then we'll, we'll flow out in the years afterwards. And there are plans, aren't there, for the Anglo-Welsh Cup that will be expanded in some way, shape or form. Can you just briefly explain that? Yeah, so obviously if, if the Premiership weekends are removed from those international periods, which is something that you know, supporters and, and everyone has been calling for, which we've now achieved, then obviously something needs to occupy that space. So this tournament, which we're reaching the climax and final of today, which has been, has been brilliant in terms of bringing on younger players and allowing clubs to give their coaching talent also a chance at running the show, all of those types of things. We see that expanding somewhat, so that might be one or two more weekends. That may provide them more opportunity for to bring in a couple of other teams from maybe other parts of the world even. So um, there's opportunities now to plan for that over the next couple of years, and I think we'll see an expansion of this competition. The real boon for the Aviva Premiership, I think, is for all, for all you guys, for the fans, because it means now they'll be able to put out their first team for all the matches of the Aviva Premiership because they won't be playing during Six Nations. So, I mean, hands up if you think this is a good thing for, for the rugby you love. No? Yeah, yeah, you think it's better? You think, yeah, well, then put your bloody hand up and stop holding it. <laughs> just doing this, just trying to get your pecs up. you just got to go to the gym. You can't be doing that. It is a good... Sorry. Actually, quite hard. I hurt my hand. Um, it's good for the league, isn't it? I think it's good for the clubs because currently the clubs are paying their top players a lot of money. I know this isn't about money necessarily, but, for example, if Dylan Hartley plays at the weekend for Northampton, I think it'll be his third start of the year for, for the club. So he's one of their top-paid players, one of their senior players, and you want those guys, your assets, available to you in your biggest tournament. So I, I think from that aspect it's good, but it does make me worry about how big squads are going to have to be domestically. And also, there's only so much money washing around in the game, and if you try and spread yourself too thin, you end up finding issues and problems fiscally. We've spoken about the Grand Slam. Congratulations again on that. I want to talk about women's club rugby here in England. And there's been a lot of changes, of course. And you're both playing for Bristol at the moment. And there are exciting times because there's a new Super League for women's rugby, of which Bristol are a part of. But, Sarah, you started your career with Litchfield, currently second in the table, but not part of the new Super Rugby structure, which is uh, surprised enough a lot of us, I have to say. Has it surprised you? Yeah, I think um, when the, the new league structure came out, it was really exciting times and it's fantastic by the RFU to, to put the investment into the domestic league and uh, it, it's sad that um, Litchfield, a, a club with such history and um, the fact that they've, they've developed so many players along the way and I certainly wouldn't be um, the player I am today without um, their support and help along the way. But obviously there's a decision being um, made um, as players, we're not privy to those decisions, so we're, we're not sure why, but um, we'll, we'll soon see what the new league lies ahead of us, really. I mean, it's a, a strong league. Look at all the teams in there. Bristol Ladies, of course, Darlington, Mountain Park Sharks, Firewood, Waterloo Ladies. Just read through. You can see they're all really, really good clubs. But Litchfield not being in there is kind of strange. Now, there is a quote from Mark Francis, who's chairman of the Women's Premiership um, Group, and he says, uh, we're delighted and it's great and it's all a very exciting time, as it is... But it makes uh, the decision, however, to lock out Litchfield for the next three seasons, three seasons, seven stone, that's weird, OK, um, is incomprehensible to us. We genuinely fear that the competition will be weakened by the loss of a team which could, in fact, win the Premiership this season. It seems completely bananas, Austin, but there are certain guidelines that have to be followed, certain boxes that have to be ticked, and I think that's why we're guessing why Litchfield are not included. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult without all the facts, isn't it, to make a, a balanced statement, but you can only think that the criteria for qualification was based on elite player performance and a community element as well. So maybe Litchfield fell down on one of those, and I agree. I don't see the difference between having 11 teams and having 10 teams, other than the fact that maybe there's only a, a finite amount of top quality ladies players currently in, the, in England that could uh, be passed across those 10 sides. That's one of the only reasons. Maybe it's based on player numbers and they don't think they can go to 11 clubs. I say let them in. Amy, that aside, it's a good thing for the game, isn't it? Yeah, massively. It's making the pool of players playing at that elite level larger and it's, it's going to be great for the game going forward. Um, and obviously we're, we're privileged to be part of Bristol, which um, 
are doing well this season and hope to go on and improve in the next seasons under the new structure. Good stuff and we look forward to seeing it grow and grow and grow and talk more about it more and more and more. Now, uh, just one result uh, from the Guinness Pro 12 over the course of the weekend. Ulster securing a try bonus in their rearranged fixture against Zebra with a thumping 68-21 scoreline. This is unbelievable for Ulster really because they're up into fourth now and you think not what, just a couple of months ago we thought they might have been out of the running there having a terrible time. Uh, Munster, Ospreys and Leinster who are flying are above them in that top four. Scarlets, well, they're in fifth. Glasgow are full 20 points behind the leaders. Leinster staring down the battle barrel of not qualifying for the playoffs for the first time since the 2010-2011 season. That would be unbelievable. Uh, Zebra are bottom. They still have a game in hand and are only two points shy of Treviso. That's important because if they finish as the top Italian team in the Pro 12, they're the ones who will get qualification for the Champions Cup next season so everyone can go and beat them because that's what they've been doing so far and that's why they need to look at that part of the league. In the top 14, La Rochelle are resiliently holding on to the top spot. They beat Breve 36-17 at the weekend. They're eight points clear at the top of the table. Claremont, they also had a pretty big win, beating Pose 65-13. They remain second. Toulon drew with Grenoble 23 points apiece. The big news from the Stade Mayol, though, is that Fabian Galtier will replace Mike Ford for next season. What a bananas club that is. It was in the middle of the table, though, that was most affected by uh, just the madness around the Parisian debacle. Fixtures between Cast and Stade Francais, Montpellier and Racing 92 were postponed due to the news that they were going to merge and the players were going to go on strike and all sorts of stuff happened. Subsequently, uh, the two teams have decided not to merge. And uh, you feel that it's Stade who are going to really suffer because they've come out since then and said, you know something, financially, we are not in great shape. We needed this merger more than the cash-rich Racing 92. And here's a comment from Thomas Savara. He is there. The president of Stade Francais and he said French rugby is living beyond its means. Everyone has to realise that we're on an intravenous trip. He's talking about the entire uh, tee of the French league there, but really he's talking about Stade as well, saying they are in trouble at the moment. So, six nations over, done and dusted. Livers can take a rest. International players return to their clubs and this coming weekend sees the return, thank goodness, of the Aviva Premiership. It's round 18 and only five rounds remain. We kick off the run-in with three absolutely huge games. This is how it looks. Round 18, Bristol against Gloucester. Crucial game for both sides. Bristol fighting for their survival. Gloucester fighting for a place in the top six in European top tier rugby next season. That's on BT Sport 1 from 7pm. Our live game is Saturday afternoon in East Midlands Derby with many a twist. Half past two on air for that one. BT Sport 1, Northampton Saints. Their international stars return for that one against the Leicester Tigers. Aaron Major's final game in charge before Matt O'Connor comes in. My word, what a topsy-turvy season at Welford Road. Harlequins against Newcastle. Exeter against Sale. Highlights from all those four games. 9pm on BT Sport 1. And then on Sunday, our live game is at Allianz Park. Saracens fighting for a home semi-final. Bath fighting to stay in the playoff positions. Half past two on air for that one. BT Sport 1. Wasps against Worcester rounds it all up. You can see the highlights from the six games. Half past 11 on BT Sport 1. So this is how the table looks. Top three looking fairly comfortable. Wasps on 64 points. They are a win away and a couple of other results to go on their way to actually make the playoffs this weekend if results go their way. Chiefs on 59. Saracens 58. Bath though kind of hanging on to it you have to say Oz and Leicester Tigers right on their tail. That's massive. And Saints too in the mix. It's a huge part of the table. Great run in on that. And front. even Quinns as well. Quinns if they can put three wins on the bounce together now. Leicester play Saints obviously at the weekend so only one of them can go away with all the points you'd have thought. So um, yeah I think it's it's down between those four sides who can take fourth spot and at the minute it looks like Saints are favourites. And a lot of neutrals out there really hoping the Newcastle Falcons make it in to the top six if not top seven to get into that playoff mix for the Champions Cup rugby next season. But Brian looking at the bottom now looking at Bristol's situation what's your read on it? Yeah they just have to give themselves a shot you know they need to get within one win uh, of Worcester the likelihood is that in uh, in Wasp this weekend that you would imagine Worcester might go down Bristol have Gloucester at home. That's a must-win game. Get within one victory and then you give yourself an outside chance of, of staying up. Nervous times for the Bristol boys, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not over until the end of the season, but like you say, they've, they've got to start getting that win and it's a massive game for them against Gloucester on Friday night. And of course, still a chance for all players with half an eye on the Lions tour to make an impression on Warren Gatland. 
And that's what the talk's going to be for the most part from now on until they go off on tour, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's still a few players that are borderline. And you can look at this board, and it's only a certain size. There could be other names on there. And there's names that we will take off to clear it out a bit. But, girls, obviously in the back row, Sarah, who do you think has to go in the back row with Warren Gatland? I think you look at, uh, I've been an eight myself, I think Vinopola has to go. I think um, going to New Zealand, you need someone like a stature that will, will get a bit of go forward, will add a bit of dynamism, and, and the team will look to him and, and thrive on that. So I think for me, he, he has to and be And who's his backup? Very quickly, who's his backup? I think probably um, maybe stand, Stander okay. in eight. And Amy in the back three, who would you go for? See, Daly's really um, performed for me in the Six Nations. I think he... He offers us something a bit different and he's really like stood up. Any of the paddies in there? Any paddies get <laughs> <getting> a look in? <laughs> well, my backup was going to be no, I'm afraid. Because um, I just think he, he offers something like that physicality and that both of them show a lot of flexibility in the way they play as well. Um, both exciting players to watch. I think that's going to be a big factor, Austin. Um, we, might, we might start in the backfield um, and talk about the, the ability to have flexibility and that sometimes can work against you. Uh, getting into your national team, but it works in your favour in getting on a Lions tour. You played scrum half, bit of out half, on the wing. On and, the wing, yeah. And, and things and, change and whilst you're on tour because coaches get to know you for the first time. They realise what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. And there's a lot of guys on here, and no disrespect to those guys at home, but we are going to take a few names out of this. It's only what we think and obviously what, uh, what Warren Gatland told Dricko at dinner last week. So <laughs> there's, there's a few names that will get dropped off there. But in the, you may look at the back three, and I've put this guy's name. You haven't seen much of him play, but for me, eight tries in seven games. Solomona is the best finisher in the Aviva Premiership. And wing is one of the spots where you could argue the Lions aren't actually, George North aside, that strong. I'd have to agree with you. I think it's probably one of the positions that's still uh, very much uh, up for debate. Uh, people are always talking about bolters. Uh, yeah, you're right, I haven't seen a huge amount of, of, uh, of this guy, but that sort of strike rate, that size, the way he plays the game, the confrontational style that he likes to uh, bring to it, I think that fits the, um, the uh, that has the perfect fit of New I'm Zealand. I'm just going to play devil's advocate. I'm at home. Drico, he hasn't played much rugby union, though. Yes, but nor, than, nor did Jason Robinson, you know. Um, he had a number of England caps at that stage, and he was an electric finisher. Um, it's just a matter of whether defensively, that's the big thing for the rugby league converts, whether defensively he can uh, work it out in enough time where a good 10 will pull you apart if you don't know what you're at. Well, strangely, out of all the wingers in the Six Nations, you know who's got the best defensive stats? Zebo, 92% defence, but unlikely to go, but... Could Zebo stand on the right wing against Surveyor and take him down physically? Maybe, maybe not. So let, let's go with a little presumption of us. I'm going to go for Solomon. We're, up, we're agreed that Hogg's definitely going to start at 15. Who's his backup going to be? Either half penny. We both like this guy, don't we? I like him. I like him. I think um, Hogg was brilliant at the start of the Six Nations. Um, had one or two defensive question marks about him. I like this guy a lot. You know, the Andre Agassi walk on him, don't, you know, don't let that fool you. This guy is really tough. He's, he's there, he's, he's a player for the hard ground, but also when it needs uh, sleeves rolling up. So he will definitely feature, just a matter of whether it'll be in the Test 15 or Test 23. And let's take Daly in there, because like we said, like the girls have said, he's uh, flexible, he can play centre, he can play wing. Probably only 17 backs going to be selected, so you're going to have some, ut some utility in there. Midfield, your area of strength? Yeah, um, this is a really contentious one, because we don't know where, where Farrell's going to be picked. But I think on recent form, I, don't, I know you'll disagree with me on that, I think Johnny Sex and the 10 all day long. When you have the passing qualities of Farrell, he's definitely going to be in your team as well. So that combination of the two, they're so alike. I saw them having such a go at one another at the weekend, but I know they'd really enjoy playing with one another because they've the same personalities. So How much cotton wool, though, are they going to have to put around this guy to get him to the third test? But like I said about Finn Russell, he takes the ball to the line. He's willing to take shots for his team because he sucks in defenders and creates space for others outside. And that's where his passing game... And, and his passing game will really uh, pay huge dividends. We're going to have to move into the pack now just very quickly, though. What value picking an Irish player who's been part of a team that's actually beaten the All Blacks of late? You know, yeah, that, that absolutely. Experience... Look, Sexton's a, a world-class 10, but, but they've the got a choice. Zeebo, got... The, the thing the... is, with Farrell there, 10s, they've got Sexton, they've got Bigger who could potentially go. We haven't even mentioned Ford, and Farrell uh, Russell will go. And we still think politically... That the, that, and I'm not saying this detrimentally to the Scottish team, but the other sides have been so strong, there's going to have to be at least four of these guys. Let's move into the back row quickly. Here we go. There, here's a big question. You like Tipperick. 
Yeah, I like this guy. Sean O'Brien has still one more game for Leinster against Wasp to prove his worth. He was on the last Lions tour, hasn't been at his best. These two have been fantastic, as has this guy for Ireland. The only problem I've got with that back row is you've got nobody who can get up in the air as a third line-out option. So maybe, where's O'Mahony? Mahoney, I can never say his name. He comes in there. Second rows, I think we're both like agreed that. on. I like that a lot. I like those two props and that hooker. That, for me, is... I've got a bolter. I've got a bolter at hooker. Hooker and wing are the two positions where we could see somebody who hasn't played international rugby a lot recently come in. This guy has got the best stats out of all the hookers, and I think that's why you could just see... I love seeing somebody who's not an international player being picked for the Lions. It differentiates it, makes it more special than it already is. Got there? One last player that maybe hasn't played an awful lot of rugby, but I think it's going to travel because um, Warren Gatland loves him, is Toby Falatau. This guy is great go forward, and that's what the Lions are going to need. Good stuff. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Tonight podcast. We'll be back again next week. We'll see you then. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.